morning. Let's take a Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we'll start reading in verse 25 in just a second. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 816. Uh, One could think of many words to describe our society. A word that seems especially fitting is weary. Weary of injustice, weary of hardships, weary of the daily grind, weary of never measuring up, weary of loss, weary of the burdens of sin. And people know this weariness. They detect it. And so there's many out there who offer you rest. To find rest in drink. To find rest in financial security. To find rest in other people. To find rest in that dream vacation. To find rest in hobbies. And not too long after seeking these offerings of rest do people realize that the rest offered by the world is only fleeting and shallow. We were created for something more. According to Scripture, we were made for God's eternal rest. But on this side of Adam's sin, we are cut off from that rest. What we need most is someone to bring us back to God. St. Augustine once wrote, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Are you weighed down with the burdens of this life? Then I have good news for you this morning. Into this weary world, God himself has come in the person of Jesus And in Jesus, we learn that it is God's very heart to get down with the lowly and burdened and help them find true rest for their souls. Let's read this together, starting in verse 25. Our Lord Jesus says this, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 25 sets the stage for us, sets the context. It says that Jesus declared these things at that time. Well, at what time? 
about the same time that he had denounced the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Of all the cities across history, these cities had received the most revelation from God. God was acting as he promised in their scriptures, in the person of his Messiah, Jesus. God had performed mighty works in these cities, and yet many of these Jews refused to believe. They refused to repent. And so what should we make of all this? You know, the, the Messiah has come to his people and his own people reject him? Has Jesus' mission become a failure? Is God's revelation not clear enough? No. The first point Jesus makes is that God loves revealing the kingdom to those who know their need. God loves revealing the kingdom to those who know their need. He hides it from the proud, but he reveals it to the humble. Listen again to the way he puts it in verses 25 to 26. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Some translations have, I praise you, Father. Jesus is making a public confession uh, of what God is like. He is sovereign, Lord of heaven and earth, and Jesus openly confesses why some have not believed. You, Father, have hidden these things, he says, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or better, such was your pleasure. These things in verse 25 seem to be the things of God's kingdom. Uh, Not merely the, the, the mighty works themselves, but the deeper realities that those works were pointing to. The realities of God's salvation that had come in Jesus. Everyone had seen the works. I mean, nobody could deny these these miraculous happenings. But only a few of them would say, I'm following Jesus. While others were saying, that's of the devil. Right? Some saw these works and and they said, oh, if, if I could only just touch the hem of his garment. While others said, leave our region. We have no need of you. And so why is it that some are seeing the kingdom in Jesus' works for salvation while others don't see it all? It's not that something is lacking in God's revelation. It's that He chooses not to give that deeper understanding to those who think they don't need anything. That's what, he, that's what I think he means by the wise and understanding. He's not making a distinction here between like the naive people and, and those who educate themselves in sound thinking. He, he's calling attention to those who are wise in their own eyes. He's calling attention to those who are, are like Capernaum back in verse 23 who think they should be exalted to heaven. He's talking about the religious leaders who are well versed in the scriptures but who don't see the goal of the scriptures. He's talking about those religious leaders like we see in in, uh, John chapter 9 who say, we see. And Jesus says, because you say we see, your guilt remains. They were the ones truly blind. In knowing God, there is a moral component involved. Those who puff themselves up 
who say they need nothing, who think they know better than God, it is God's pleasure to hide himself from them. But for those who are like little children, God loves to reveal himself. Now, the scriptures elsewhere speak to uh, qualities about little ch- qualities of little children that we should avoid, like immature thinking, right, and vulnerability to falsehood, and, and things like that. But here, <clears throat> the contrast Jesus makes is between these the self-sufficient and those who are willing to learn, those who know their need, those who come with this spirit of dependence upon Jesus to, to show me more, show me more, Jesus. Uh, later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, there's a, a scene from the final week of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 21, verses 15 and 16. And you get this scene where these little children are singing praises to Jesus in the temple. Hosanna to the Son of David. And the chief priests and the scribes get offended. They get enraged, right? Shush! Keep these kids quiet! And... Uh, Jesus then tells them, or asks them, Have you never read out of the mouth of infants, which is the same word we see here in our passage, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? That's a quote from Psalm chapter 8 where we find God using little children to silence His great enemies. The children get it right here by praising Jesus while the chief priests and scribes, those who who should have been the first to see with all their learning, and they get it wrong. It's a pattern we find throughout Scripture, right? From, From Gideon's tiny army to David and Goliath to the weakness that is displayed in Jesus' cross, God is known for choosing what the world would perceive as weak and foolish to shame the strong and wise. And 1 Corinthians tells us that God does it this way so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that's the first thing Jesus speaks to here. The unbelief doesn't mean that His mission is a failure or that God's revelation isn't clear. It underscores the pride of the people and God's purpose to get glory in the lives of those who are weak. Is something we should pause and ask ourselves, which one are we? Which one are you? Are you wise in your own eyes? Self-sufficient? Or do you come like a child, helpless without his parents' presence, gift, and counsel? Do you come needy and with a teachable spirit? Jesus then makes a second point. No one can know God savingly except through His Son, Jesus. No one can know God, know God savingly except through His Son, Jesus. Listen, listen again to verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now here we find at least three things about Jesus. One is His supremacy. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
Now, Jesus will say something similar in Matthew 28. After his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And authority may be included here as well in the all things. But this context seems to be focusing on God's revelation. All things that God wants to reveal about himself and his kingdom, he has entrusted those things exclusively to his son. And the son is therefore the supreme agent in the revelation of God. And that supremacy is rooted in the mutual knowledge shared by father and son. That's the second thing, Jesus' knowledge. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son. Now, perhaps a Jew might object, right? Wait a minute. We know God. He revealed himself to Moses, right? He revealed himself to the prophets. They wrote about him. We know God. Well, true. The scriptures reveal God sufficiently, but they don't reveal God exhaustively. They give us only what God has chosen to reveal. Only the Son knows God eternally, immediately, exhaustively, unceasingly. An eternal relationship between Father and Son exists that nobody has access to. Nobody. Unless they choose to give you access. And that's the third thing Jesus wants us to see, his role in Revelation. No one knows the Father except the Son and, praise God for the rest of the sentence, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Only God can reveal God. The only way you will know God savingly is if the Son chooses to reveal Him to you. The Son has all things from the Father. He knows all things about the Father. The Father and Son are one in their sovereign purpose to reveal and to redeem. The Father reveals Himself through the Son, and we could add from other places in Scripture, by the Spirit. Salvation is of the Lord, which should give us pause again that if you have come to know God you should find yourself saying with Isaac Watts, Lord, why was I a guest? Why did Jesus choose to reveal himself to me? Why did the Spirit work in my life this way? Salvation is of the Lord. What then does this mean for the listeners, right? If God delights in revealing the kingdom to those who know their need, and if Jesus is the only way to know God, then it makes complete sense that Jesus now invites the lowly and the burdened and and the weak, the ones who know their need, to come and learn from Him. You see, the Son chooses to do here what the Father loves. What is it that the Father loves? Well, he loves revealing the kingdom to the weak. And so the son says to the weak, come, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
There are three imperatives here. And these three imperatives are the thrust of the application of this this passage. Come to me, take my yoke, learn from me. So come, take, and learn. Notice several things about these statements. One, they center around Jesus. They center around Jesus. Jesus isn't calling us merely to a new way of living, although that's included. He's first calling us to Himself. Come to Me. Learn from Me, He says. So we're invited into a personal relationship with the Son, and in that relationship we're brought near to God, right? He's the one who reveals God. Now to the Jewish ear, this is a shocking invitation. Jeremiah 6 has a similar call from Yahweh... Jeremiah 6, verse 16 says, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. That's from Yahweh. How were they to find rest? By centering their lives around the ancient paths of Yahweh. And yet Jesus says, Come to me. Come to me. Center your life around me. What's his point? He is God's supreme revelation. To come to him is to come directly to Yahweh. Two, these three imperatives inform one another. Come, take, and learn. We'll soon learn about the rest uh, that Jesus promises for those who come to him. But these, these three imperatives, when you take them together, they teach us that the rest Jesus gives is not inactivity. Right? This isn't coming to Jesus and life is suddenly the Instagram shot with the house clean and the perfect latte steaming in the background over your Bible. No, this is a call to come and enter the school of Christ. So to speak. It's a call to discipleship beneath Jesus' yoke. A yoke was worn by an ox where the ox learned submission. To take Jesus' yoke means that we are learning to submit ourselves to his teaching. That's the connection between take my yoke and learn. Learn from me. We come to learn from Jesus' teaching, his example, his salvation. You might say, well, that's like trading one yoke for another. One burden for another. And Jesus brings that up in verse 30. Yeah, that's what you're doing. It's just that my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is light. So there's a huge difference. Yeah, you're changing from one teacher to another, one yoke to another. But there's a huge difference. Jesus clarifies that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Another translation is that his yoke is kind. Jesus' pattern of teaching doesn't leave people weighed down. It lifts our burdens. It's kind. That doesn't mean your life's suddenly going to feel like a field of daisies. There may be hard lessons to learn beneath Jesus' yoke. But as we learn from him... His words guide us into the true rest that our souls long for. And so three, Jesus speaks these imperatives uh, to all who labor and are heavy laden. That's another thing to observe here. 
He speaks these imperatives to all who labor and are heavy laden. Who are they? Well, if we turn to Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, we find this word again. Jesus is uh, teaching the crowds about the Pharisees. Verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens. There's our word. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The Pharisees' yoke isn't like Jesus' yoke. It's a crushing yoke. You see, their teaching doesn't take into account the person and work of Christ. In their teaching, they misuse the law, and they even add to the law. And so folks, under their teaching, they toil, and they toil to to please God by scrupulous law-keeping, but there's only more guilt, and more guilt, and only more finger-pointing. You're not doing enough. Uh, Something similar occurs in Acts uh, 15, verse 10. Uh, The Lord saves, the gospel goes out, the Lord saves numerous Gentiles. It's new to a lot of the Jews. What are these Gentiles coming into the church, right? And so they have some men from Judea who come down and they say in Acts 15, 10, unless, uh, they say in Acts, at the beginning of Acts 15, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Peter then argues the opposite, proving how the Spirit has shown otherwise. And in the process, Peter concludes, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, same word, a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So again, we're seeing that there are patterns of teaching, a certain set of beliefs that don't take Jesus into account. And if you live by them, they leave your soul heavy laden, burdened. Now, that could be all that's going on here, and that would cover a lot. I mean, there are numerous sets of beliefs out there that don't take Jesus into account. I mean, from larger systems of of religious thought, right, that leave people weighed down with guilt, working their way to heaven to smaller moments where we don't consider the teachings of Jesus. There are also numerous teachers, leaders, spokesmen, activists, social media outlets, all feeding you a set of beliefs that exclude the person and work of Jesus, that create their own laws that you must measure up to, and your silence is violence. And society regularly finds themselves weary. But I'm not, I'm not sure that we have to stop there. Maybe those who are weary and heavy laden also include those Jesus took note of in chapter 9, verse 36. 
When he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're, they're, they're weary, searching for the truth about God and, they're, and leader after leader has left them in the dark and disappointed. Or maybe they're like the people Jesus refers to in chapter 6, verse 25, who are anxious about the things of life, right? How the bills are going to get paid and where the next meal is going to come from and how the, how the kids are going to put on clothes the next day. Or maybe they're like the woman in chapter 9, verse 20, who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Due to circumstances outside of her control, she's weighed down and desperate for help. Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden. Whatever weight you carry, Jesus' invitation to you is to come and find rest in Him. Some of you feel like you need the approval of others. That is the set of beliefs that doesn't take into account the work of Jesus. That is a set of beliefs you live by, that you must have the approval of others, and that fills your week with endless toil to keep everybody happy. Others of you are are overwhelmed with your circumstances. Perhaps the set of beliefs doesn't include the fact that God is sovereign over all things and cares for you and is good to you in every moment. And and you're just kind of leaving that out. All you see in front of you is that you can't control these things and so you're always on the edge, irritable, and then snapping and then burdened by the guilt for the hurt you've caused to others. And you're just weighed down with it all. Others are weary from suffering. You're heavy laden by the burdens of another doctor's appointment, another scan, another lump they found. Others work and work and work because they think God isn't pleased with us. Functionally, we live with this set of beliefs that says you must do more and more and more to be accepted. I mean, whoever you are. Whatever your burden, Jesus says, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. But why? Why should any of us come to Jesus over all the other options in the world? Why do we come to Jesus in particular? Well, we've already seen that Jesus is our point of access to know God savingly. Right? Only God can reveal God. That's one reason you should come to Him. But another reason is that Jesus Himself is gentle and lowly. He is gentle and lowly in heart. Verse 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus is weak in character doesn't mean that Jesus isn't willing to say hard things. I mean, just read the verses before this section where he rebukes three cities for not repenting. What does it mean? I think one clue comes again in chapter 21. The scene we talked about earlier where the kids are saying Hosanna to the, the son of David. 
And in this scene, we see Jesus, he's riding into town on on a donkey. And it says there that he rides into town humble. This is the same word that we find here in our passage. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Which is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. And the Hebrew there can also be translated poor or afflicted. Which develops the kind of humility that we see in Jesus. It kind of fleshes it out for us. I mean, he's he's king of the world. He owns everything. He has, he has the right to be seen as this as glorious royalty. And he doesn't come for his people while clinging to all the privileges of royalty. His path of obedience leads him to become poor and experience affliction. He chooses the uncomfortable road of suffering to raise his people up. Another clue comes from outside the Gospels. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, uh, Paul is entreating the church. Some have been uh, mocking him for the, the way he has taken such a, a lowly state or weak state, and, and he's trying to come back and explain why the legitimacy of his apostleship. Uh, in comparison to these super apostles. But in in the process, he, he entreats the church, he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, which are the same words in our passage. But these words come in a context where Paul himself, his point, he's, the point Paul's making is that he himself has exhibited in his life and ministry the meekness and gentleness of Christ by the way he has lowered himself in the road, on the road of suffering to lift the church up, to see the church unto maturity. In other words, the very heart of Jesus is one that's willing to take the lower position to raise you up. His very heart, which reveals the heart of God, is one that gladly lowers Himself to be with you and to carry your burdens and to save you. Unlike the Pharisees who are not willing to lift a finger, Jesus gets down beneath the burdens and He lifts them. His heart does not say, you work your way to Me. You get yourself together and you stand up now. His heart is one that condescends to raise you up. How lowly is his heart willing to go? Philippians 2 tells us unto death on a cross. Beneath the wrath of God. For our sins. He willingly bears your greatest burden of all. That's his heart. That's why you should come to him. That's why you should take his yoke. That's why his yoke is kind. Behind all of his teaching is his willingness to serve you unto death on the cross. That's why you should keep coming to Jesus. He remains gentle and lowly in heart towards all those who know their need. And the other reason you should come is that Jesus gives true rest. 
He says it twice. Verse 28. Come to me and I will give you rest. Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. You know, I don't think it's an accident that right after Matthew records Jesus promising rest, he gives two accounts of Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. So we're going next Sunday. What was the Sabbath about? Rest in the presence of God. Everything rightly ordered in the presence of God. Everyone whole in the presence of God. Sabbath was was the sign marking God's covenant people, Israel. And God threatened terrible things if they didn't keep Sabbath because it was that important. Again and again and again, they practice the Sabbath every week, ending with the Sabbath, pointing them, pointing the people to the goal of eternal rest in God's presence. That's what it was all about. And yet here, Jesus centers that rest on himself. Come to me and I will give you rest. Talk about a bold claim to a bunch of Israelites. All the hopes the Sabbath pointed to were now coming to fruition in the person of Jesus. He is the one who has come to settle our hearts at rest. He is the one who has come, like the psalmist says, to calm our anxious hearts in the presence of God. Because he is God, that's why he can offer this rest. No matter what burden you're carrying, Jesus' gift to all who come and learn from him is rest. And that rest will one day be experienced fully in our resurrection bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. But by coming to Jesus, he says our souls can know some of that rest now. Right now. Now, you might be asking, like, what does it look like on the ground? All right, what does it look like to come and take Jesus' yoke and learn from him and find this rest for my soul? And I have a few examples. I mean, we could think of the Apostle Paul, right? He submits to Jesus' yoke, and he can write from prison in Philippians 4, about the peace that surpasses all comprehension. So his physical body, I mean, that's not a restful place. Stone floor, in chains, exhausted, burdened, how the church is doing out there. And Jesus gives rest to his soul, and he describes it as the peace that surpasses all comprehension and guards your heart and mind. Uh, or 
Consider the Scottish missionary John Patton, age 33, takes the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands, and the natives there were cannibals at the time. And one night, John Patton has to hide in a tree while an angry mob seeks his life. And this is what he wrote about that night in the tree. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the people. And yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, and to enjoy His consoling fellowship. Many of you also remember Jennifer Farah. She's now with Jesus. But it was December 2017, right over there, after church, sitting with her. Chemo was starting... Soon, and I remember Jennifer sharing how weary she had become researching how chemo affects the body. Into late hours of the night, scanning all the websites, anxious treatment options were tangled and uncertain. She was worried and afraid, and so what does she do? She comes to Jesus and she puts herself beneath his yoke. She turned to Luke chapter 12, the teaching of Jesus there. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? And she chuckles with tears as she read that to me and says, Ha! The Lord counts it a small thing to add time to my life. Right now, that's a pretty big thing to me. And then she said, But my days are numbered. The Lord numbered them already, and I can't change how many He's given me by worrying. If that's the case, then all she can do is honor Him with the days that He gives her. She talked to me about how true living isn't defined by what we can add to our lives. It's defined by God and how rich we are with God. You see, Jesus gave Jennifer, he gave Jennifer's soul rest through his teaching beneath his yoke. Or take a different kind of burden like the burden of legalism. I mean, it comes in different forms. But one form of legalism is when human traditions add requirements where God Himself has not spoken. People will sometimes make extra-biblical requirements where, uh, you know, a test of faith or fellowship. 
personal preferences get elevated to a place of authority alongside Scripture, and folks find themselves burdened with guilt on things that God hasn't even spoken about. And how many times I've, I've watched that burden lifted in my office as I'm simply asking the question, where does the Bible say that? Where does the Bible say you're required to do that? Let's put ourselves for a moment beneath Jesus' yoke. Let's learn from Jesus' word. What does Jesus say is required of you? Does Jesus' word say you must dress this way? Does Jesus' word say you must eat this way or educate your kids this way? That you must discipline this way? You must vote this way? That you must speak to every issue that just came across your Twitter feed this way? To spend your time this way? Okay, let's look at what His Word does say. And you can see as we're just reading the Bible, you can see it happening. As they look at the Bible, they're saying, I've never felt relief like this before. (laughs) Because all these years they've been feeling guilty for the wrong reasons. Or another time I can recall approaching my oral exams from uh, uh, the Ph.D. program. And I had studied hard, but I was also totally anxious. I feared most failure. And as I was staring at the sidewalk, going through my outlines and acronyms, (laughs) uh, a brother stops me on the way into the building. He prays for me. And he said, hey... You've been faithful to prepare. No matter the results, your biggest problem has already been taken care of at the cross. Your status as God's child isn't going to change. And your good Father knows the future and what you're going to need. So what was that brother doing in that moment? Well, he's bringing me underneath the yoke of Jesus' teaching. And he was helping me learn from Jesus in those moments. And I went into that oral exam with a lot more joy (laughs) and contentment. The Spirit of Jesus used those words to give rest to my soul. So whoever you are, whatever burden you have, Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Dane Ortland has a book. It's good. It's called Gentle and Lowly. I think we've got some in the book nook back there. But he writes of these words, You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. So I just want to close there by saying, come, little children. Come, take, and learn from Jesus. For He is gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the day of rest that is coming. where we will know the the fullness of a restored creation. 
without any burden of sin or what sin has caused. And we long for that day to come. We pray that Jesus would come quickly and bring it. But until then, help us sit beneath Jesus' yoke and learn from Him. And in learning, I pray that You would give rest to our souls by the Holy Spirit, calm our anxious hearts, hide us in your bosom, give us rest. Amen.